Kind of like Brother Chris did, I just went back and looked through the past few years and saw, well, what are some interesting topics that have not been covered? And the Lord took me all the way back to 2003 when this was preached. It's been referred to often. We have facts on our website that talk about what I'm going to talk about now. But it still is something that we need to be reminded of and that we need to consider. This message is designed to defend godly ministers. You, God's people, need to know and remember God's picture of what a minister is and not the world's refined image. Brethren, I can't emphasize it enough. Our brother can't emphasize it enough. We are bombarded on a daily basis in everything around us, and it's joined in by a traitor we all have within called our natural man. We don't want to see what God has for us. We don't want the ministry that God has prepared for us. That's why this is so important. You want to be able to avoid offense when you run into a good, godly, rude preacher. And you should be able to defend one against the attacks that he will receive. Our website, thank you, Brother Matthew, for all your efforts and dedicated time over many years to provide this outlet for the truth. Through that website, our pastor is exposed on a daily basis to many and many individuals who have no conception about what a Bible preacher is. And he has to explain it. He has to defend himself because of that. Our daily one-verse commentaries from the book of Proverbs contain rude use of Scripture that this generation hates. The lesson today is not for entertainment. I may say some things that may be entertaining, but I'm not here to entertain you, brethren. Let God's serious anger against sin provoke you to a jealous, a righteously jealous attitude towards his service and for our holiness. For the maximum value of this study, you need to put some of the examples that you'll see that I'll talk about today into use as you look at today's environment. Brethren, that's a skill that we all need to develop. If you haven't done it already, you need to be working on it. How can I take this passage of Scripture, which is written to this culture and this society and these circumstances, and apply it to me, to my family, and to what we have before us today? That's a skill and a talent. I'll be very honest with you. Our brother does that to a marvelous extent of taking these things and bring them down here. And you know how he did that? He practiced it with his kids, right, guys? Those of you that are his children, you know. He practiced that. I remember him talking about that, sitting down at the family table, reading a newspaper and saying, oh, here's an interesting story. What Bible principles apply to this? We need to be doing the same thing, brethren, with ourselves and with our families. This generation wants little old ladies. It wants sweet couples. It wants men who have nice, big, toothy grins. To tell you 
What a wonderful thing this life is. How God is just waiting to pour down his blessings upon you if you'll just sow a little seed. And I'll give them their, their due. Some of them may be talking about spiritual things and not just carnal things. Young men, do not settle for a friendly pastor who has great bedside manner. And that's his emphasis. He'll ruin you. It's just such men who out of the sincerity, don't get misunderstand what I'm saying, out of the sincerity of their hearts, they believe that's what they're supposed to do. But after we get done today, and I'm only going to give you a tithe. I'm going to give you a tithe of what this outline contains. That's why I say you need to go back and read it yourselves and look at the verses and go through them. This is not the idea that God had in mind when he set up his ministry. Let's get an introduction to some rude preaching. First of all, think about the exercise of the office. Think about how God's ministers are often accused of being rude or harsh in their preaching because of their unrefined conduct. What do they have to say about John the Baptist is composed of Jesus Christ. Our Lord Jesus Christ brought this up in Matthew chapter 11. He said, John, he came neither eating nor drinking. And what did they say of him? He's got a devil. He's too strict. Well, the Lord Jesus Christ came eating and drinking. And we all understand in context he met in moderation. But he came eating and drinking. What did they call him? Well, he's a wine bibber and he's a glutton. Brethren, the bottom line is, what's the old saying? You're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. That's the nature of God's ministry. You will be attacked from every side no matter what you do. If, and here's the big if, if you are doing it God's way. If you are pointing to sin. If you're pointing to inequities. If you're pointing to things that need to be corrected and changed in people's lives. And I think we can all agree that that's a fruitful territory, right? Amen. You'll never have, you'll never run out of things to point to. Right. Hey, at least as, new, as long as New Eastland is sitting in this congregation, there's always going to be something that needs to be fixed, something that needs to be reminded of, something that's got to be changed. We prayed about that this morning, right, brethren? We have an unchangeable God. Why? He's perfect. We're not. So until he's made us perfect, we should be looking forward to change in all areas of our life. <clears throat> but back to the ministry. Now, since if a good minister is doing his job of studying the book, and most people don't even want to crack its pages, since the average person cannot deny the doctrine that a minister sits to him because they're ignorant of the Bible, well, they're going to attack the preacher, right? Brother, in all these political debates, it's very easy to find out where truth is if it's anywhere. Because you know the first sign of error is when the issue is not even discussed. The character of the person who's in, in the picture is what's discussed. Oh, that's an awful guy. How can we trust him? Well, right there, you're telling me that you've got no answers. Right there, you're telling me that you don't know squat because you're attacking the man. You're not coming up with well, what's wrong and what should be done to replace it. 
Same thing in the ministry. A minister will point to sin and say what needs to be done about it. You can't answer it because you don't know your Bible well enough. Oh, he's just so hard. He's just cruel. I mean, he must have he, he must have picked apart flies or something, torn the wings off of flies when he was a child. You know, he was just deprived or something. That'll be a a minister will be a, 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 you know a, accused of being too divisive. Silly scorners will pontificate about preachers being too rude. Brethren, we live in a politically correct environment where ridiculing sin and naming names. Ooh, name names? Oh, why, would you, why would you hurt someone's feelings? Isn't this a safe zone? No. We'll get to a couple of, we'll get to passages where the Lord named names about people and said, this person is doing this, that's wrong. That's a godly minister. Our nation considers outlawing gospel preaching because it's too hard. It's too insistent. God's people need to know the basis for a minister's conduct so that we can defend him, so that we can support him in prayer, so that we can be ready to give him encouragement, and so that we can have an answer when we run across some of these fools that don't know anything about Scripture. Now, you know, God's ministers, they're not hurt by these accusations. They could care less. They're soldiers of Jesus Christ. What did Paul tell to Timothy? Endure hardness like a soldier of Jesus Christ, right? But they are sensitive to make sure that they're doing their job to please God and to do it the right way. Well, that's what we're talking about. And brethren, hear me closely. The opinions of worldly women, I want to praise that because we've got a lot of good women who are not worldly here, and you understand this. But the opinions of worldly women, which weigh heavily in most churches, are totally irrelevant. You tell me how a worldly woman could know anything about authority, leadership, teaching, war, and other ministerial duties. They don't. So those opinions don't even count. And of course, what's worse is how many men are there who sound like that. Their opinions count the same. Next, we need to rightly consider the terrible nature of the God that a minister represents. If you pick somebody to be your representative, you want them to accurately reflect your nature, don't you? If you've got a business dealing, you want them to accurately represent your financial position and what you're ready to do and not do. If you're at a higher level, you're an ambassador for a country, you want to know what that country stands for, what its policies are, what is the best for that country, and you want to reflect the leadership of that country when you're dealing with other countries. A minister is the ambassador of Jesus Christ. He has the, no doubt about it, he has the highest office this world knows. With all due respect to our president, President Trump in Washington, his job is child's play compared to a godly minister doing his job in this generation. 
And just as he ought to be respected, so ought a minister be respected. But think about it from his standpoint. I represent the God of heaven. You heard that charge, didn't you, that we started off this morning with? Think about a couple of instances. The Lord suffocated the world, except for eight people in a universal flood. But for 120 years, the man who was to survive that flood with his family was building an ark, and he was a preacher of righteousness during that time. What do you, what kind of ministry would you like from that man? Brethren, exciting days are coming. We're going to see something you've never seen before, rain from heaven. Is that what you want to hear? Or do you want to hear, brethren, the Lord is displeased with us. He's going to drown this world in a flood. We need to repent and do what's right. Which ministry would you want? If you had cancer, is it a nice thing for the doctor to come in? It's just a small little thing. And, you know, given a few little treatments over time, you know, we'll probably be able to handle this. Is that what you want to hear? Or do you want to hear, you've got cancer. It will take your life unless we do X, Y, and Z in X time frame and X circumstances. And if you do what we advise you to do, you've got a high chance that you are going to survive and live a long life. Which would you rather hear? Brethren, your theology, it has effects. What's the major theology of this world? It's Arminianism gone to seed. It's universalism. And a God that loves everybody, that creates what? What kind of ministry does that create? A compromising, begging, and weak ministry. So it's no surprise. should be no surprise what kind of ministers we see in the world today. Beyond that, you've got folks like the Roman Catholic Church, who is the Antichrist of Scripture, right? Do we have any problems understanding that? It wants to have dialogue with all the Protestant denominations. It's called ecumenism. And it's like, let's all get together so that we can serve the same God together. Well, one thing, brethren, we don't serve the same God that they do. But they want to compromise everything. They want to water it down to the lowest level. And therefore, you'll get intolerant criticism if you buck against that authority. Brethren, why be nice when you're dealing with error? Is one plus one two and a half? How many jobs are you going to get if you believe that? I mean, the employer's not even going to look at you, right? If you don't even know what one plus one equals. We're talking about things much more important than silly numbers. We're talking about life and death in this world. Yes, the Lord is the one who's going to put us in hell, heaven or hell, depending on his choice. But how you live this world, do you want a hell on earth? Or do you want a life of blessed peace being given strength every day to do what you need to do and joy in your service to the great God of creation. Right. That's the difference. That is the difference. You look at the amount of suicides, the amount of depression, the amount of drug use in our world today. It's only because of the nature of the ministry that this world has, especially the U.S., especially the U.S. that is blessed more than any nation this world has ever seen. 
Why should anybody in this country be depressed? Yes, some people do have chemical imbalances and they need help with that. But outside of that, why should you be depressed here? Oh, but if you believe that you're the most special thing that came along the, the world and everybody doesn't acknowledge that, oh, yeah, that's depressing. That is depressing. If there's literally a fiery hell for sinners, brethren, why, would endure, why should an ordained man worry about being polite right. in what he says and how he says it? God's preachers are designed to sound like an instrument. Is it a harp? Gently strumming. Is it a flute? Playing a nice little ditty. It's a trumpet, right? You use trumpets to go into battle. Use trumpets because there's a lot of noise out there and they're loud and they're strong and they communicate a message. That's the nature of a godly minister. Joel chapter 2 and Revelation chapter 1 tell us that. Oh, we're in the book of Revelation. Think about the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's think about Mild and gentle Jesus. How is he presented there in that first chapter of Revelation? He's got eyes like a burning fire. And what comes out of his mouth? It's a sharp, two-edged sword. Cutting people. That's the Jesus Christ we're going to meet one day, brethren. Now, we're hoping he's going to say, Well done, thou good and faithful servant to us. But you know, brethren, on that day... Everybody, saints and sinners alike, are going to be scared. That's what a minister is to represent in his ministry. God's preachers are not surrogate grandfathers. They're not administrators. They're not charismatic leaders. They're not entertainers, baby dedicators, wedding officials, hospital volunteers, or funeral directors. Study your Bibles carefully, brethren. We as church members, are to visit the sick. Right? Mm -hmm. So as a church member, yeah, our brother can go occasionally to visit the sick. But that ain't the primary title of his job. I don't see back here where it said, visit the sick. It said, preach the word. But how many pastors, that's what they're so good at. That's what they spend most of their time doing, taking care of organizational details of a church body, including going to visit the sick. No, that's our job, brethren. Let's, get our, let's all take our responsibilities and, and perform them, okay? And that ain't one of his primary jobs. That's ours. You know, Benny Hinn and effeminate charlatans like him, they'd be excluded. They'd be excluded from a godly church, from a Bible-based church. Add to that the Pope, Robert Schuller, Jack Vanipe, James Dobson, Joel Osteen, Joseph Prince, you still haven't got one minister of God yet. If you add all those guys together. Now let's think about the source of the authority of that man that we're talking about. The Bible is able to make the man of God perfect. Turn back to 2 Timothy chapter 3, where we were, right in the middle of this. It tells us, or at the very end of that chapter, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. All scripture 
is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, Amen. that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Amen. Think about that for a second, brethren. God gave us this book. What good is it? It's given by God. He inspired it. It's profitable. It's profitable for our doctrine, for our reproof, for our correction, that we can be instructed in righteousness. We're back to our base. Do you want to know what a good work is? You know, so many people come up with all these ideas about what's a good work. Is it defined in here? If it's in here, it's a good work. If it's not, it's one of those opinions that we don't care about. I don't see, the, I don't see UNICEF in this book. I don't see the principle of UNICEF in this book. So guess how much impact UNICEF has on my life? Zero with the ink rubbed out. <clears throat> but notice the impact of this book. It's specifically given. We all get benefit from it. I hope you understand that. We all get benefit from it. But the primary benefit we get is through the ministry. Right. That the man of God may be perfect. What do you mean by perfect? Is he sinless? No. It means he's complete. It means in his job that God has given him to explain this book to us, he's complete. He's got everything he needs. If he's got everything he needs, what does the ministerial association need to add to make him more complete? Zero again. And if you read carefully, where do you see the ministerial association in this book? Uh, you don't, except, yes, you do see some ministerial associations in here, and they're receiving condemnation from God because of their activities and because of their beliefs and because of the way they're doing things. That the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished. Don't you love all that redundancy in Scripture? He doesn't just say that it makes him so he can do his job. It makes him complete. He's perfect. He's thoroughly furnished. Everything a minister needs to be a minister of God right here in this book. Amen. Furnished unto all good works. I know I said that before. I think it needs emphasis again. Every good work you want to find, it's in this book. Nowhere else. That's where a minister spends his time. This is where he gets those good works that we should be doing, that he should be doing, that we collectively as a congregation should be doing, that we as husbands over our families should be doing, that we as wives in our families should be doing, that we as children under mommy and daddy in that family should be doing, that we as managers at work should be doing, that we as employees under managers at work should be doing, that we as citizens in this country should be doing. And by the way, pulpit manner, pulpit manner, bedside manner. Please find those terms in Scripture for me. You'll find, you'll find the, the term pulpit over in Nehemiah chapter 8. Guess what it is? That thing right there I'm standing on. What was the purpose of the pulpit? 
So the preacher was high enough you could see what book he was opening up and reading to you from. This book right here. That's what you need a pulpit for. Not because it's got some sort of special way that we walk into it or we act while we're in it. It's a vehicle for lifting up the man of God as he opens God's book to teach us what we ought to do. That's exactly what a pulpit's for. So, is that enough introduction? Let's jump into what is some examples of rude preaching. First of all, in case you didn't know, let's, let's define our terms, right? Let's understand, what, when we say rude, what are we talking about? Uneducated, unlearned, ignorant, lacking in knowledge or book learning, devoid of or deficient in cultural refinement, ungentle, violent, harsh, rugged, marked by unkind or severe treatment of persons, of language, composition, etc., lacking in elegance or polish, deficient in literary merit, coarse, inelegant, rough. All those are definitions of what rude means from the Bible. Excuse me, from the Oxford English Dictionary. Now, Paul admitted that he was rude in speech, but he didn't say he was rude in knowledge. He chose ignorance. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 6. I won't make you turn to too many, but let's turn to a few. 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 6, Paul said, But though I be rude in speech, yet not in knowledge, but we have thoroughly made manifest among you in all things. See, he was concerned about having a full, a full ministry that exposed everything that was needed for that congregation. And he admitted, yeah, I'm kind of crude when I talk to you, but it's not because I don't understand. As you'll see through, the, through what the scriptures teach, a minister chooses how he does things because God has told him what his pattern should be, right. what he should look like. That's right. You know, Paul, Paul's critics look in the same chapter, or the same, yeah, the same book, rather, uh, for previous chapter, 10.10. Notice what Paul's critics said of him. In first, 2 Corinthians 10, verse 10. For his letters, say they, are weighty and powerful. Amen. Amen. You read anything Paul wrote, it's weighty and powerful. But his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. And see, Paul didn't mind that at all. He didn't mind that at all. Because you know what? He doesn't care what you think about his person. What he cares about is what his ministry is saying. And is it in accord with what Jesus Christ commanded him? You want to talk about a learned man, brethren? Paul at one point says that, you know, he, he was raised, you know, in the Jewish tradition under a particular rabbi. His name, since I'm over 60, just escaped me. But you go back and you look historically, that's listed as one of the third greatest rabbis the Jews ever had. So Paul wasn't behind in theological education. Go over to Acts chapter 17, where he's talking to the philosophers in, Rome, in, in Athens, the seat of worldly wisdom and learning. He's quoting a minor po poet, a, mo a minor Greek poet, when it says, in him, speaking of God, we live and move and have our being, as also some of your poets have said, for we also are the offspring of God. 
And you know what? Guys who like to do that for a living in seminaries, they've found and they can tell you who that minor Greek poet is. So Paul was no dummy. Paul was learned. Paul understood things. But when it came down to, well, how am I going to present things? What am I going to present? The simple gospel of Jesus Christ is what he presented. You know, most of God's ministers are not educated by worldly standards. And they're also pretty politically incorrect. Let's look at rude preachers, the fact that they often show an obviously lack of refined learning, eloquent speech, and gentle manners. Who was one of the greatest prophets of the Old Testament? Elijah. Think about Elijah for a second. What was his attire? What was the attire of Elijah? He wore a leather loincloth. Oh, and what, was his, what were the delicacies that he ate? Locust and wild honey. Imagine that. A guy that's dressed like a caveman almost, okay? He's got a letter girl on himself. He's getting there. He bites off the head of a locust, takes some honey, and then he preaches to you. That's, 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 that's not Benny Hinn. That's not Joseph Prince in his classy little leather suits. That's not the Pope and all of his regalia. That's kind of rude. That's kind of crude looking, isn't it? That was somebody who could pray and bring fire down from heaven so that a sacrifice that had been soaked by barrels of water over a couple of hours' time was boom, taken up, burned up instantly because of the fire of God that came down. He was a rough and a wild man. Who's the introduction who our Lord said was the greatest prophet of all from the Old Testament? John the Baptist. What did he look like? What were his sophistication? He looked just like Elijah. Does that give you a picture of what the Lord has in mind when we talk about rude and crude? <clears throat> Peter and John. What noble profession did those gentlemen have? What, what, what you know, degrees did they have that, that made them ready to go to seminary? They were fishermen. Fishermen. In one instance, we know that Peter was out fishing, and he heard that the Lord was there, and he had to throw his coat on because he wasn't exactly well-dressed at the time. John the Baptist, Jesus, and Paul. How were they described? I think I mentioned this, didn't I, already? How were they described? You know, one is a madman, the other's a drunkard. And what did they say about Paul? Before Festus, when Paul was giving his testimony before uh, Bernice, the queen, and before the king of the Jews, and before Festus, the Roman governor, right in the middle of Paul's testimony, what did Festus cry out? Paul, much learning does make thee mad. Paul, people thought he was mad at times. He's crazy. Paul, what are you talking about? Would you want the Apostle Paul as your minister? Amen. More than that, who is the pattern for the Gentile ministry? It's the Apostle Paul. And you know, we should expect this kind of thing because... Over in Psalm 68, verse 18, when it talked about how 
that God, when Jesus Christ ascended up on high, he gave gifts unto men. And in that place, it says, even for the rebellious also. Talking about the ministry. Think about some of God's ministers. Was Moses meek and mild coming into the ministry? Come on, you're reading it right now, aren't you, if you're following the three chapters a day? What was Moses' thing to God? Oh, God, send by whoever you will, but not me. Oh, this is wonderful what you want to do to Israel. Who are you going to do it with? Not me. Got to the point where the Lord was getting upset with him and finally said, now look, you say you can't talk. You know your brother Aaron. He can talk real well, can he? Okay, well, I'm going to let him be the spokesman. I'm going to give it to you, and you give it to him, and, you, and, and that's the message to Israel. And God ended it at that point because Moses didn't want the job. You think about Jeremiah. You think about Jonah. Jonah, that's a good ministerial example, isn't he? God says, go this way. Let me find a boat that goes that way. But the Lord can take rebels, turn them around the right way, and use them. Sometimes he likes that spirit, you know. He likes somebody who's going to go this in the nose in front of other people who aren't ready to be able to receive things. God's rude preachers are often coarse and rough in their actions and speech. Think about Moses. Turn over to Genesis 32. Genesis 32. Going to get some examples. I need to fly through these with you. Exodus chapter 32. Context, Moses has just been on the mount. He's been on the mount of transfiguration. Not the Mount of Transfiguration. Well, I think it is eventually, but no, he's been up on the mount. He's been looking. He's been talking face to face with God for 40 days. He's had these stones he's prepared and the Ten Commandments written by the finger of God are in his hands. And all of a sudden the Lord says, Moses, you got to get down. Those folks are getting rowdy. He comes down. He meets with Joshua, who's just a little bit ways down the mountain. He says, Moses, it sounds like it's the sound of, of battle in the camp. Moses listens for a second. He says, that's not the sound of battle in a camp. That's the sound of people singing and partying. He comes down, and what does he find? Two golden calves. He's only been gone 40 days after all the miracles are coming out of Egypt. 40 days, and what does he see sitting there? Two golden calves. Not only are they worshiping them, but it's a pagan orgy going on in some of the camp. So what does meek and mild Moses do? Verse 20, chapter 32. And he took the calf which they had made and burnt it in the fire, ground it to powder, and strawed it upon the water and made the children of Israel drink it. He says, hey, you guys want these calves? Here. Busted it up, burned it, took the powder, threw it in the pond, and said, drink that. Oh, he was just getting started. What happens next? Verse 25. And when Moses saw, the people were naked, for Aaron had made them naked unto their shame among the, their enemies. Then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Let him come to, unto me. And all the sons of Levi gathered themselves unto him, all of his tribe, all of his brethren, the ones who were to be the priests in Israel. 
And he said unto them, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Put every man his sword by his side, and go in and out from the gate to gate throughout the camp, and slay every man his brother, and every man his companion, and every man his neighbor. And the children of Levi did according to the word of Moses, and there fell of the people that day about three thousand men. And Moses, for Moses had said, Consecrate yourselves today to the Lord, even every man upon his son and upon his brother, that he may bestow upon you a blessing this day. Brethren, we're not talking about something as easy as, oh, just put them to the side. Explain to them what they did wrong. No. Slay them. And notice, starting with the dearest, your son, your brother, your immediate family, and then your neighbors. That's the nature of a minister of God. What God says counts, nothing else does. Think about the Levite over in Judges 19 that had his concubine sexually assaulted and killed. How did he get the attention of the rest of the nation that something was wrong in the city of Gibeah we need to take care of? Did he send a little proclamation? Or did he cut her up into 12 pieces, stick her in FedEx boxes, and ship them to all the leaders of Israel and say, let's get together. What do you think about this? Can you imagine that delivery? Was that rude? Oh, that's beyond rude, brethren. That's beyond crude. But that's the nature of God's, what God thinks about sin, isn't it? Did that get people's attention? They destroyed that city. Actually, that nation, that people that they were part of, took their side. So the nation had to come together and basically all but destroy that tribe. They left, I believe it was like 300 they had left alive, and then they had to find special means to get them wives so that a tribe of Israel wasn't destroyed. Totally. That's what God thinks of sin, brethren. Should his ministers be anything less? Think about Samuel. Remember when, when the Lord sent a charge to Saul that he should take out the Amalekites. What did he do? He brought back the best of the sheep and the oxen, and he brought back their king Agag. Okay? After Saul was informed that he just lost the kingdom over that, by Samuel. Samuel goes to Agag, and Agag saying, hey, the time of, of trouble's over, isn't it? We're, we're in good times now, aren't we? Samuel hacked him to pieces because God said he should die. And since the people didn't get that lesson, well, let's make sure they get it. Let's not be lethal injection. Let's hack him to pieces. Think about Elisha. Do you remember an account where 30, 42 kids came out one day and said, Go up, thou bald head! Go up, thou bald head! Teasing him. Because they remembered how Elijah, who had put Elisha in the ministry, had left this world. But go up, thou bald head! Go up, thou bald head! Teasing him that he was a bald man. Did he turn to them and say, Children, you should be more respectful of your elders? He didn't even bother with them. 
He turned to the Lord and said, Lord, look what's going on. Two she-bears came out and ripped the 42 to shreds. <gasps> they were children! If they were children who had been taught by wise parents, they would have done that. That's how bad the nation was at that point. Object lessons need to be made, brethren. Ahijah. Ahijah was one of God's prophets, and Jeroboam, the king of Israel, came to him one time and wanted to know something. And how did Ahijah address the king of Israel? How did he approach him? He said that God would remove him and his works just like a man removes dung. Crude. But if you know what that man was doing, worshiping Baal and all sorts of other abominations, it's kind of mild, really. The sweet silence of Israel in Psalm 59 talks about men barking like dogs and belching. That's kind of a gross analogy, isn't it? Yeah, but it's fit. And God wants to get our attention, brethren, because sometimes we are so stupid. We are so foolish. We're so wrapped up with ourselves and with our opinions that we need somebody to slap us in the face. Oh, you know, my favorite, one of my favorite men, Nehemiah. What did he do when he found out after he had already come to clean up the place? After he had come to clean up the land, to get the city rebuilt, and to reestablish the worship of God, he goes back to his job as, the, uh, as being the man who took care of the wine for the king of Babylon. He comes back in Nehemiah 13, and around verse 23 it tells us that, In those days also I saw Jews that had married wives of Ashdod, of Ammon, and of Moab, and their children spake half in the speech of Ashdod and could not speak the Jews' language. Jewish parents marrying pagan wives and the influence is such that they can't even speak their own Hebrew. But according to the language of each people. So what did gentle, kind Nehemiah do? I contended with them and cursed them and smote certain of them, and plucked off their hair, and made them swear by God, saying, Ye shall not give your daughters unto their sons, nor take their daughters unto your sons, or for yourselves. And he goes on to point out, didn't Solomon, who had, was the wisest man ever, wasn't he led astray by outlandish women? Brethren, do you wonder sometimes why we have teaching in this church that you should only marry in the Lord? Because there was a godly man that did bodily assault. He slapped them. He plucked off their beards because they did that thing. Because God hates that thing. Right. I remind you, the first time we hear about something like this, what was the result? The flood. God sent a flood because the families were corrupted in the world. The sons of God... The righteous descendants of Shem had married these worldly women. Oh, they were pretty. Oh, they took care of their needs. But they didn't want to worship Jehovah. They didn't worship the Lord. And God said, I've had it. Think about Hosea. 
Hosea had to have two marriages, one with a whore, then with an adulteress, and have children by both as an object lesson to the people. I mean, that makes some of the things we hear about today seem mild, doesn't it? God thinks sometimes you need strong object lessons. What did our Lord say to the woman that came to him asking for her daughter to be healed? Here she was praying for the Lord's blessing. And what did he say to her? Well, it's not, it's not right that the, I take the children's bread, meaning the nation of Israel, and give it to dogs. And she was a woman of faith. She said, well, yeah, that's right, Lord. But the dogs do eat of the crumbs of the table. And he says, oh, you got great faith, woman. I'm going to grant you your blessing. That was a test for her, and she passed the test. But he didn't have a, one split second of a qualm calling her a dog. You read last night, if you read Matthew 23, what are some of the kind things Jesus had to say of the religious leaders of his day? Hypocrites, blind guides, fools, serpents, vipers. Religious leaders. Jesus took a scourge in premeditated anger, drove carnal worshipers out of the temple, poured out their money, and threw their tables over in fury because of his zeal for the proper worship of God in John chapter 2. Should a minister do anything less? Is this not the temple of God in the New Testament? What did James call believers that liked the Super Bowl, that liked things of this world, that just wanted to be cuddly friendly with them? You adulterers and adulteresses? What did Jesus say about the church members in Laodicea? You know, they weren't hot. And they weren't cold. They were just kind of lukewarm. Well, what did he say to them? I'm going to vomit you out. These are just some examples, brethren. You know, God's rude preachers were not above mocking and ridiculing other men's religion. I love it when Jesus Christ talked to those who went out to see John the Baptist in the wilderness. Think about that. What went you out to see? Did you go to see men with, in, you know, that, that were in king's palace, you know, that, that were in good raiment or something? You know, those guys are in palaces. You know, what went you out to see? You know, did you go out to see a minister of God? <laughs> yeah, verily, that's a minister of God. He's making fun of people going to see John. Well, because they had different motives than trying to see him for the truth. And he knew that. God's rude preachers, they'll call names. They'll name names. They'll take addresses. You know, John, isn't he the apostle of love? Don't we love to call John the apostle of love? He talked about Diotrephes in 3 John, that he loved the preeminence. And that wasn't in a good sense. Jesus Christ rode against a certain prophetess named Jezebel in the church at Thyatira. said he was going to put her in a bed and kill, kill her and those who were in that bed with her. Paul wrote about Hymenaeus and Philetus and Alexander the coppersmith who's done us much wrong. I wouldn't want to be that man. I wouldn't want to be on that list. We could go through our, our brother, the Apostle Paul. 
and look at how many times he said things. Just look at one. Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5. I hope this doesn't strike too close to anybody in this room, but it may. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 12. Here Paul has been waxing eloquent, talking about how Jesus Christ is so much better than everything in the Old Testament. But he reaches a point where he's got to stop. In verse 11 he says, Of whom we have many things to say, talking about Melchizedek, and hard to be understood, uttered, seeing ye are dull of hearing. For when for the time ye ought to be teachers... Ye have need that one teach you again that which be the first principles of the oracles of God. And are become such as have need of milk and not strong meat. For everyone that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But strong meat belongeth unto them that are of full age, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. He said, i got to take a break right here, guys, because I can't go any further because there's some of you that are just dumb babes. You need to grow up, and you need to learn things you've already been taught. That's the believers. That's the brethren in churches now. You know, God's ministers are told to reject foolish and unlearned questions at times. You see at times in the letters, the correspondence our brother shows us, how sometimes he'll answer a question, other times he won't. If the person's got a learning attitude and they really are dumb and they need some help, he'll help them with it. If he smells just the slightest bit of arrogance, what did Jesus Christ say about the scribes and Pharisees who said, who his disciples said, Lord, do you know they, they were offended by what you just said? He said, they'd be blind leaders of the blind. Leave them alone. Let them go into the ditch. I don't care about them. Defense of rude preachers. Brethren, God's ministers are rude because they serve God, who's rude against evil. Fair speeches are characteristics of whores, it tells us in Proverbs chapter 7, verse 21. Orators, Acts chapter 24 opposing Paul, and false teachers, numerous passages of Scripture. That's where you get fair speeches. God's ministers are rude because they have their treasure in an earthen vessel, and they are ministering to earthen vessels. God has ordained his preachers to be rude to minimize, think about this, brethren, converts who are not truly called. Brethren, you don't know how much pain and difficulty we are saved because of the sieve that is our website and that is our pastor looking at what comes his way, what people say, what their responses are to what he says. Advising them where not to come. The very gospel has been designed to offend the learned wisdom of this world, it tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul's rude speech, lacking man's wisdom, makes the cross of Jesus Christ the test. Brethren, if you're here for any other reason than because you believe in Jesus Christ or the Bible, you're in the wrong place. And great efforts are done, are exerted to make sure that you know that and you understand that. 
The offense issue is good to drive away fools and show God's love for those that truly love him. You know, it's the nature of evil men to make God's minister an offender for a word. I won't turn you to it, but please look at Isaiah 29, 20, and 21 sometime. It's an awful category when you make a man an offender for a word, and we've seen it happen. Every sermon, every writing that comes out of here is going to contain something in it that's rude or offensive. And it cannot and should not be otherwise. If you think evangelism can be improved by sweet talking, you are totally ignorant of what human depravity has done to our hearts. Not our minds, not our ability to understand the truth, but our desire to want it. And what steps we'll take to get it away from us. What are the restraints on God's proud, rude, not proud, but rude preachers? God's men don't seek to be rude just to set up a personality. We don't have a personality cult. And you shouldn't be attracted just because they're rude. They have an important message to preach. And their rudeness just emphasizes that message. God's men are to be all things unto all men that they might by all means save some. In 1 Corinthians 9.22, there's prudent compromise on personal and other levels that can be made and should be made. And anybody who's watched Brother Jonathan, in particular, since he's our pastor, knows he understands this. And he does that. Paul commanded preachers to be sound in speech that cannot be condemned. Over in Titus chapter 2, 7 and 8. God's ministers do not strive or wrangle with any. They present the truth kindly. But the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, in, in meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves. If God, peradventure, will grant them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth, that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil that are taken captive by him at his will. It's a good passage to look up sometime. Go through each one of those phrases. And anyone who's dealt with our pastor knows that's exactly how he takes it. If you come to him with a serious question, if you come to him with something you don't understand, but you go the right way, brother, help me understand the Bible, he will bend over backwards for a long time to do everything he can to help you with it. That's what a minister of God does. But you come in with a preconceived idea, you come with something that's outside of this book, and you want to champion that, there's a door. Don't let it hit you on the way out. And that's the way you'll be treated by a godly minister. When men believe and love the truth, ministers will serve them like a nursing mother. That's what Paul said over in 1 Thessalonians 2, 7 through 12. In conclusion, brethren, the chief mark of these perilous times, the last days, is the degenerate preaching of the gospel. Do not ever play the fool and allow some one word, one concept, one thing, or one mannerism cause you to be offended. One second in our Lord's presence, and you'll wish that the ministers you knew and who would preach to you were more rude and it grabbed your attention better. May the Lord Jesus Christ be, be magnified and lifted up by the preaching of his word.
Please join me in standing.